Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrewer, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Nick Hare and Chris Ragg of Aleph Insights, and this week we're discussing the Hartlepool monkey. Okay, this is hot off um, the newsstands then, I take it, Chris. Go for it. Yeah, from, from the Napoleonic era. <laughs> yes, very current. Um, but no, the reason, the reason it is slightly current is because um, uh, there was a recent um, by-election in uh, the constituency of Hartlepool mm-hmm. um, and uh, it received a lot of um, interest in the media. And so um, the story of the Hartlepool monkey came came up again because it's one of the the few things famous, for which few, few famous things which uh, have happened in uh, in in Hartlepool. Um, but yeah, sen- essentially, this is the 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 kind of legend. I mean, it, it, it's in some places it's cited as a historic historical event, but um, I think. It, uh, I think it's safe to say it's it's a legend uh, mm-hmm. that during the the Napoleonic uh, Wars there was a um, a French a French ship uh, wrecked um, in Hartlepool Bay uh, and the only survivor um, was the the ship's mascot which was a a, a monkey uh, apparently dressed in in French military uniform um, and that the the people of uh, of Hartlepool um, came to the conclusion that it was indeed a spy uh, for the French, and they they tried and hanged the the uh, the monkey. In Unfortunate Simeon. Yes, exactly. Um, well, I thought it was that they didn't even realise that it was a monkey. Well, they they, thought, they, that's also been said French... that, that that because there was so, there'd been so much uh, anti-French propaganda, and they had been portrayed in a Simeon fashion. They may have thought it was a. Uh, that's what a French person. I, looked I mean, like. I've got a number of questions because the first of all, that everyone keeps talking about it as a monkey, but the the statue that I've seen, which is supposedly yeah. depicts this beast, but is a clearly a chimpanzee. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I, I suspect if they were if they were confused enough to have thought it might be a spy, <laughs> they probably weren't applying rigorous animal. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, the, the, it is probably worth saying, isn't it, at this point, that, that not only is there no evidence that it did happen. I mean, there's plenty mm. of evidence that it almost certainly didn't happen. I think. Yes. In I, that, I, I think um, that's, in that's that no one talked about it until a musical comedian in the mid 19th century made up a song about it. Ah. The first documentary good, evidence is good after old he's Ned died. Yeah. yeah. And then, and apparently he he just sort of used to make up a different song about every town he went to, and uh, that, that one stuck. Um, but also, I think someone's actually looked at the ships that were wrecked in Hartlepool during the Napoleonic era, and none of them were French. No, okay. that's right. According according to record, and not only that, there are there are also other tales of um, monkeys being hanged uh, in other sort of mm. towns and villages around. It, around isn't it UK, awful, so. horrible when um, facts get in the way of a great story? Yeah, yeah especially yeah. if the only thing your town is famous for never happened. <laughs> yeah. But but what's quite what's quite good about this is that actually you know the people of of Hartlepool have in a sense been scapegoated or scape monkeyed um in in the same the same way that um that that um poor old hangus was um because what of what's just happened do you mean in terms of voting no i mean the fact that they've been tarred with this this idea that they're Mm. moronic and you know um 
you know, and it didn't actually happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but um, they've embraced sorry. the legend. So you know, they they're obviously yeah. happy with it. So so, but look, this nicely leads us in, I believe, because what do we really want to talk about, Chris? <laughs> Well, I think we really want to talk about um, the the idea of scapegoating and yeah. and you know and why we why we feel the need to blame things and why we why we sometimes are quite happy to misapportion blame. Mm. Um, so okay. so yeah, I think that's yeah. There's there's plenty of blame flying around these days. Um, Nick, what have you got to say? You got some data or other ways you want to lead us? Well, I, I just. Um... I think it's worth probably thinking about this as constituting three questions, which are uh, interesting. First of okay. all, what what does make us keen to blame people? As Chris said, you know, why is why is blaming people for stuff something that we like doing? Mm. Um, are we taught to do that? Uh, you know, or is it some something more uh, primal than that? Mm. Is it then the question of is is that urge a sort of a, adaptive one assuming it's an urge is it one that actually has a rationale or is it some side effect is it the result of some cognitive bias that we have um that uh you know is a negative side effect of some other positive adaptation um and then perhaps more controversially and intriguingly is it ever right is it ever morally right to punish the innocent um monkey or otherwise um so yeah i mean just but in terms of data i I mean there's uh, obviously lots of data about miscarriages of justice obviously a lot of them we won't ever find out about it's a very good um database actually of uh miscarriages of justice in the uk it has several hundred uh, documented examples from the last 50 years um of which um about 26 percent involved a false confession or an unreliable confession which is interesting including a lot of the very high profile ones um so uh you, you know and it's fu- it's it's fu- i mean just noting my own reaction to that i sort of think well if you're going to confess to something but these are people who are who are kind of you know mentally ill uh, a lot of the time people who kind of uh, are literally li- like like confessing to things or or you know have a kind of histrionic tendency and like to put themselves into dramatic events um 21% are uh misleading um forensic science um, and uh, about 18% involve inadequate disclosure. But by far the most significant cause is unreliable witnesses. Something like 50% of miscarriages of justice come from witness statements that, that later found to be unreliable. Um, so, uh, yeah, these are, I mean, four, 40, so about four in 10 of these cases are, are murder. So it's pretty serious serious things so we have we have a lot of we've got miscarriages of justice happen quite a lot um and uh i suppose we have a legal system which is designed to protect against that by having a whole load of processes and um and sort of red tape associated with it which i think a lot of people constantly express frustration with um you know why is it that we have to effectively give the benefit of doubt to you know the nth degree really need you know you've got to be beyond it's no good just thinking this guy's probably guilty you've really got to be beyond reasonable doubt and um and a lot of people i think find that a bit frustrating they feel like it's uh the 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 playing field is tilted in favor of miscreants um why don't we just get on and, and punish these people and I, I think that so that that rich sort of ties into that first question really of wh- where does this urge to punish people come from let's cut to the chase i mean why blame i think it, isn't mm. the answer simple because it's it it might be that you've got a got first of all you might be right actually 
um, the person might have actually done the thing that you're accusing them of. Um, but secondly, and, and probably what we're really talking about, is you might have an agenda as an individual or a society. And the, the agenda might be to detract attention from yourself. Um, or it might be because, you know, I don't like immigrants and therefore this is all immigrants' fault. That, so that's why people do this. So it's to because um, there's an agenda, right? And as as you were talking, actually, I was thinking about until recently. I worked at my at my at my job. I worked in two teams, and one of the teams I really disliked working in. The reason why is they're always blaming each other, and people are always trying to blame um, other people. And it's usually when something's gone wrong, and you don't want yourself to be the victim of blame you 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 and sometimes it is that person so isn't it always because there's an agenda isn't that it well i think i i think you're right in the sense that i think there are multiple causes for for, for blame basically and, mm. and uh, you know psychologists have, have have looked at this uh there's no one compelling unifying you know theory that uh that exists but that point that you're talking about the the um, the opportunity to explain failure or misdeeds while maintaining one's own positive self-image. So, you know, something bad happened associated with me. Uh, you know, it wasn't my it wasn't my fault. It was somebody else's fault. You know, yeah, by, by attaching hunt. exactly by attaching the the blame to somebody else. You're you're both avoiding the punishment that comes with with blame, but also you're you're maintaining your own um uh image of yourself as being you know um infallible which is something you know we need to do for for sort of resilience uh, uh purposes yeah and i i, I you know the the uh, and i think that's um sort of borne out by you know if you actually look at the term scapegoat and what it what it actually is to do with and this this notion of you know attaching societies sins to a you know one of a pair of goats and it, the the one that sacrificed is not the scapegoat the one that runs off into the wilderness carrying you know the sins of the community on its on its shoulders is the one that is the scape, scapegoat and it's that that notion of um i i think in in those circumstances where it's a you know it's a it's a goat uh it's fairly it's fairly harmless in that you um, collectively say, okay, there is blame apportioned here. Let's pass it on and let's move on. We'll, we'll mm. attach it to something else I like that. We'll, yeah. and we'll send it forwards, right? Obviously, the problem comes when you attach it to a person who is going to be punished for that, for that, uh, you know, sin. Um, mm. And and they're not the ones who, who were responsible for it. So I think there's this element of self-preservation, of moving on, Um but I think there's also a, a, a kind of element um, of displaced aggression. So, you know, it's like something something bad's happened. I'm angry. You know, the kick the dog theory of sort of, you know, my, my uh, you know, my work isn't going well. I'll kick the dog and that will make me feel better in some in some way that you're mm. you know it's about um and and that's obviously you know a more sinister s sort of idea than than um than moving on from from a from a problem so yeah, it's think, interesting yeah. so rene girard who's a french philosopher saw um <clears throat> saw the development of religion and mythology as an essentially a, a way of channeling this impulse that you know you could blame bad things on satan and demons yeah and that kind of thing um, to stop them taking problems out on each other. 
and I, and I think um, you know, I, but I think that that indicates, or at least relies on, leans on the idea that retribution and the urge to to inflict it is really a fundamental urge, and and I think that's borne out by um, you know neuro uh, neuroscience. Uh, as far as I'm aware, um, people. Uh, really genuinely enjoy hearing stories about people getting retribution like the, the mm. retribution aspect is a really key part so a story where someone gets away with um, bad behavior is is uh, even though it's the sort of basically the same story until right at the end um, is not considered enjoyable at all but people actually uh, you know get dopamine from hearing about retribution yeah. and I think one of the key elements is that the um, the, the person who's punished has to know that they're being punished for something so it's no it's no good reading about someone who was evil and then and then suffered a terrible mishap they, they have to suffer the terrible mishap and know that it's because they were bad and um i think even babies have an urge like if you if you they do these things they they when they've shown sort of little cartoons and things to babies where you know a little square will run up and steal the the triangle's ball and then if the square gets rewarded for it the babies get angry uh, whereas if the square gets punished, they like that, you know, they kind of clap and smile. Um, and, and so I think I, I so my feeling is that this is something really fundamental. I mean, uh, you know, at the uh, very much the animal level. Yeah. Um, and and I think that so that brings us on to the question of whether or not it's, you know, is, is it adaptive? Is there a kind yeah. of. Yeah. And so this I mean, this boils down to the I think the, the game theory. So the, the, there's a puzzle, there's a paradox, which is that retribution is costly and has no uh, immediate benefits, you know, at the time you do it. Um, so why would we have evolved to want to, in, you know, undertake a cost um, for something that has no benefits? Can and you give us an example? Well, I mean, yeah, so, so if, if- Illustrate it for us. Yeah. Well, if, if do you, from a sort of evolutionary environment, you know, the idea would be that a, you know, that one of the, your, one of your fellow, um, you know, chimpanzees comes and steals your bunch of bananas. The point is that, well, you know, and he eats them. Well, you've got nothing to gain by going and punching him in, the, in his stupid chimpanzee face. Uh, Was he a French chimpanzee, though? That's yeah, the, exactly. That's the question. Well, he's got, uh, you know, your best bet is probably to go and find some more bananas and just be a bit more careful next time. But instead, we have this urge to go and, to go and punish the other chimpanzee um, for taking our bananas, right? But, but there's nothing to get. We're not going to get our bananas back, okay? And so in it's fact, a cost. you might get punched in your stupid chimpanzee Yeah, so, face. so there's a cost without any benefit at the point at which you, you want to take that action. Um, but the, the rationale, I mean, the sort of game theory rationale is that we have evolved to, to want to inflict punishment because it makes it credible. Right. It, it makes our, it makes the threat it protects of our future credible. bananas. Yeah, because because so the point, the fact that people know we enjoy inflicting retribution um, means that we don't even have to. It's not a cost benefit analysis. You know, we're not we're not going to go, oh, I've weighed it up and it's not really worth it. We're just going to really be strongly motivated to go and do it. And and that the, then means it's a credible threat, whereas if it was based on something which was, you know, uh, it, on a kind of more, you know, an act by act cost benefit analysis it wouldn't be a threat because you just eat the banana and say well there's no point what's the point of punching me you know a banana for a banana just leaves everybody hungry as martin luther king didn't say but you know uh so that's the uh that's the um that's the the rationale i think uh Um, the game theory explanation for it and the third um, question, wasn't it? I don't know if you're ready to move on to that, but you were talking about, you know, does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so oh. so then, okay, what about false positives, if you like? 
Um, and I think there is an argument to be made. I, I haven't seen this kind of written down anywhere. Um, but there is a plausible argument that it makes sense to have more false positives. So to blame more things than uh, than actually deserve blame, to go around seeing more blame than, than you, there is, if you like. And it's let's say that things happen for random reasons and malign reasons. So you're you're in a kind of world where so you're, it looks like you, someone's taken your... Well, I, I like bananas. We're, we're with chimpanzees. We're in the world of chimpanzees at the moment. So let's stick with that. Um, and you uh, and, you know, your bananas gone missing. And it could be that that, uh, uh, you know, the it's the same chimpanzee from earlier. It could be that he's come and stolen them. Or it might be that, you know, that just they fell off uh, the tree or, or a you know snake took them. Um, but the thing is that uh, if it's the second example, well, there's not much you can do about it. But if it is the first example, then you then there is benefit in going and stopping him from doing it again, right? Yeah. So you know if you blame someone and they're innocent, then that one person gets hurt. But if you don't blame someone who's guilty, then actually lots of people can get hurt because it means there's a malignant yeah. actor in your in your group, or if you like, someone is out to get you. So I think there it probably is a rationale for until why the want point to be at which the 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 risk of being hurt by somebody dishing out retribution exceeds the risk of uh, a malign actor not being being punished. Yeah, I so, think... I so think, you have to get that yeah. balance right, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I, so I, think, I feel like you don't have to work very hard to explain where, not only where the urge to exact retribution comes from, but also why it's a bit oversensitive. You know mm. why there's why we why we feel more of an urge to blame things than we actually probably ought to. But yeah, I mean, so you the the last question there really is: is it morally right to punish the innocent sometimes? Yeah, I mean, I I, I and I don't I don't even necessarily feel like there's the. I mean, it's clearly very very closely tied to to morality. I mean, you mentioned religion. And, uh, you know, there are all sorts of manifestations, like you said, the, the devil being the original scapegoat, you know, the fallen angel blamed for, for the existence of sin. Um, you know, obviously, at the heart of Christianity is this notion of somebody being punished to absolve us of our, our sin. Yeah. Um, but then you've got these weird... I'm just, I, I, I'm just going to have to take, you know, Vicar's words for that, because I don't, I still don't really get it. Yeah, no, me neither. Um, but but there are even weirder manifestations of 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 this notion of um, of you know blame, blaming the the innocent for things or at least in, innocent people taking on um, the the punishment for uh, for others' sins. Um, have you ever come across the um, the concept of a sin eater? Oh, I've heard well, of this. It. Is, yeah, isn't Mexican. Well, yeah. So, so I think it, it does have origins in in uh, Mexican um, uh, kind of, you know, um, I, th I think it's Aztec culture, but also yeah. uh, in in kind of Christian practice in you know parts of deepest darkest Wales, um, where where in in that kind of um, uh, ritualistic setting, um, somebody would turn up to the funeral of the recently deceased and eat a, a, a you know a ritual meal at the at the funeral, um, and they would then take on the sins of the person who had just who had just died. Um, you know, so obviously not having 
conducted any of their their sins but this idea of, of, of passing it on which is a very weird concept but do you, what, know, what, do you know wait wait hang on but what do they what do that does that mean, does that mean they're then guilty of exactly that person's sins? so they are then guilty so they would then do the the you know time in purgatory on their behalf or, or, or whatever be, be careful um, this weekend nick when you're accepting dinner invitations okay yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. it, but hang on is what if the sin eater then dies and somebody then eats their sin well are they taking you, on all the other guys yeah, it's a bit like well. it's a bit like um conquers you know you get you get somebody <laughs> left at the end who's, uh, who's <laughs> holding who's all the sin holding all the yeah. sin yeah yeah um the, um, the, the, the sin sink um is, but Sorry, I, I, sorry. Were you about to go on to, about to go on and make a? Well, I was just going to say, there's another another example. Have you ever come across the the? Um, well, you must have come across the phrase "whipping boy," but you know yeah. its origins. No. So essentially, um, the, the, it's uh, some. So so with Charles I, for example, his whipping boy was William Murray, and they're they're essentially like a friend of the the prince. Oh, I do remember uh, this. Who yeah, who can't be. The prince can't be whipped by their, you know, master or whatever because of the the status differential. Yeah. So the idea is that you have this person who is is flogged. You know, when the when the prince sins, you know, does something wrong, uh, the the whipping boy is is whipped, uh, and mm. the the prince then sort of sees this and thinks, oh, that's a that's a shame. I won't do that again because otherwise my friend gets whipped, or not, as the case may be. <laughs> well, so, I, I would imagine that because uh, British toffs are complete, uh, absolutely bonkers, <laughs> yeah. that this is considered an extremely high status role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get, I think boy. I think uh, 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 William Murray got an earldom, um, right, as, <laughs> as a result of being uh, Charles yeah. I's whipping boy. But so there are all these these things that exist where you pass, you, you know, you knowingly pass blame on to somebody who isn't you know who who doesn't deserve it and yet that seems to to serve a serve a purpose so it is obviously deeply uh yeah. you know there's there's a deep sort of moral element to to um and i, I think these examples show that we have yeah. a kind of distinct idea of a category of a thing like of, of, of a sin or blame being a kind of thing that you can obviously pick up and move around and transfer between yeah. people um which is an interesting model. It, it just feels very physical. It feels like it's related to the idea of, you know, spoliation and the idea that something can be impure, you know, that, that you can, uh, but that you could remove the impurity and, and, and move it somewhere else, you know, but it's mm. a thing. There's such a like thing as impurity. Like the pink stain in Cat in the Hat. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I think just going at this question of like, uh, so I think those are, those are like, obviously we have evolved ritualistic ways to transfer blame to people who are, you know, innocent. Um, but I think there's there's also I mean, the problem utilitarianism struggles with this quite a bit. And, you, you know, utilitarianism is obviously quite an intellectual theory in that it tries to it tries to give you a moral calculus, which is in effect a sort of objective standard for whether or not a particular act is good or bad. Um, and and inevitably it, where it really, you know, struggles is when you have these deep seated moral intuitions because they aren't based on a cost-benefit analysis um, and uh, you know the, the sort of utilitarian approach to um, analyzing punishment is that well it has value because it deters future crime it may have value in rehabilitation um, that, that you know the, the it, it, there is a struggle with trying to explain why for example you would you would punish um, 
the Nazis after World War Two, because you think, well, then they're not going to have another chance to do it. And it's very unlikely, you know, we're spending a huge amount of cost here to run these Nuremberg trials. And it's very unlikely there's going to be a new bunch of Nazis turn up who we can deter. And even if even if there were, they'd be unlikely to be deterred by it, you know. Um, so but the the, the sort of uh, with it, the response within utilitarianism is is this this issue about sort of rules versus acts, which is that, well, actually, instead of trying to um, be utilitarians at the basis of one act then another act in this case punishing someone we should be utilitarian in our design of rules and say that well it's better to have a rule that you get punished than one way you don't or one way you only get punished if it seems like it's worth it but there's other there's other i mean there's a, there's a whole um, another class of kind of difficult um problems I suppose the, the most famous example within philosophy is called the Southern Sheriff and the philosopher called McCloskey came up with this. And it, it's uh, the idea that you've got a sheriff in the deep south in the olden days, you know, and a, a black guy's been um, uh, falsely accused. The sheriff knows he's innocent, but there's going to be, you know, a race riot in which, you know, let's say 10 black people are going to be killed um during this race riot if he doesn't if he doesn't hang this innocent guy so he's kind of got faced with this choice of do i do i you know hang the innocent person uh, and potentially save lives or do i let the idea of you know punishing innocent people being wrong take precedence and i i uh, so yeah so i think i think there's a there's a um that is a challenging that's a really challenging case. I think you have two moral intuitions that conflict, and I'm not sure there's a, a, an obviously right answer. Mm. Um, we're going to have to sort of leave it on that question, as it were, because I've got another question. I've got another question, okay, that I want us to. Uh, I mean, before I go on to that, is there anything, any burning, anything burning you want to say before I close it out with this question? I, I suppose the only, the only, the only thing I'd, I'd say is that I, it's interesting that this problem of mm. does it is there a you know the cost benefit analysis for for punishing punishing people uh, versus the sort of it's obviously right to do this um, is something which I think is incredibly prevalent particularly in international law you know when we look at um, well should, why are we you know why have we got sanctions on this country not that country mm. and um, so I had a quick look at Freedom Freedom House's uh, list of sort of which are the most um, or the least you know the, the, the countries with the worst rights and civil liberties records and whether or not they had sanctions and um, uh, you know you, so you've got Basically, the countries which end up with sanctions are are bad, but poor and yeah. friendless. They're yeah. they're Western Sahara. Sorry, they have much oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somalia, um, Syria, places like that. Right, um, the places which are up there, but uh, mysteriously do not have sanctions I mean, like on them, China, are places Saudi like Tibet. Arabia. Yes, Tibet, yeah. um, but also um, uh, you know Russian satellites as well, sort of Belarus. And then places like Crimea and Eastern Donbass, and uh, so basically, you, you, I mean, the calculation being okay. Well, we will impose sanctions, but you know, if if you're too scary, if you're the, uh, you know, if you're a member of the P5, or if you're not, if you're a former Soviet state, we probably won't. So I feel like that that pragmatism about yes, well, punishing wrongdoers is the right thing to do, unless it seems it causes like, World War Three. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, okay, I've got a question to round things off. Um, if I've got two questions, you can answer one or the other or both. Um, for you, what have you ever been blamed for that you definitely didn't do? Okay. Um, and or what have you blamed someone for 
that you then realised, oh, um, they didn't do it, and I'm wrong. Oh, I can I can tell you both from primary school actually. Okay, um, Nick, you kick us off. Right. So when I was um, about, uh, I must have been about eight. Uh, I was in the playground. There was this girl called Nicola in the year above. She was big and beefy. You know, girls are bigger than boys, aren't they? At that yeah. age, she was yeah. she was quite a bruiser anyway. One time, I think we were having some sort of argument, some sort of scrap in the playground, and she got me in a headlock. Yeah. So she had her arm round my neck. Nick versus Nick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she had, I was, I had my back to her. She had her arm round my neck. And in an effort to evade her grasp, I simply pulled at her arm and was able to escape. Right, yeah. cue her screaming, you know, crying. rolling around on the floor like a Formula One, uh, like a, like a, uh, like a football you know, player. football player. Uh, and, um, <laughs> And uh, uh, and then a complaint from her mum because apparently she'd broken her arm in uh, in a skiing accident or oh, something. Really? And, I, and I'd I'd now you know through in, through my evil attempt to escape from being strangled by her had had now somehow you know set it off again. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I had to write a letter of apology to this to this Nick. If you're out there, Nicola, I hope you're sorry. Um, but I, but in if it, 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 I okay. So my the thing I, I still feel bad about mm. is that um, I uh, when I, I took I had a stormtrooper which I took to school. You know, this was during the not, mid eighties. Not a real one, I hope. No, it was a, although they're it was terrible a toy, shots. So a stormtrooper, uh, and I lost it. And then uh, about a week later, I saw Kamal Hussein playing with a stormtrooper. Mm. And I, I, in my mind, it was so obvious that he had taken my stormtrooper. Yeah. And that's why I'd lost mine and he'd mysteriously acquired one. And I told the teacher that he'd taken my stormtrooper. And, um, and I think she confiscated it and gave it back to me. And, and I, looking back, I don't think there's any real evidence that that was my stormtrooper. So I'm really sorry, Kamal, if you're out there, I'm really sorry about the Stormtrooper. I'll get you another one. I, I can't help but feel that somehow this is um, Nicola in the year above her fault that you you, you blamed Hussein. Uh, what's his name? Kamal. Uh, Kamal, Kamal yeah. for, for I, I, I just feel he scarred you and, and, and set you off on the wrong path in life. I think Could that's be. what happened there. Yeah. yeah. Um, shall I go or do you want to go, Chris? Yeah, you go. I'm still still thinking, so. Yeah, I think what's interesting, by the way, we talked about um, sanctions against countries and power. And I think in a lot of these examples, it's going to be when an individual without power gets blamed for something. Mm. Right. And that's how this sort of burning sense of injustice and unfairness can sort of come from. But anyway, in my case, I've been blamed for many, many, many things in my life, um, some of which I didn't do. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) one of them was I remember um, when I was a kid, my mum was furious. I was about, I don't know, five years old maybe was I think it was a Mars bar had mysteriously gone missing and apparently a rapper had been found in our household and and my mum was just eaten the Mars bar (laughs) very good um and um yeah I just remember my mum really going to town on it and um and just sort of interrogating both me and my brother to the extent and and we were going no it wasn't me to the extent that we um my mum said, right, well, we're going to go to the police station. We're going to, you know, have this out. And I remember me and my brother at the time think, going, wow, she's really, you know, this is quite serious. But let's go. And off we went to the police station and we were sitting outside and going, right, no, I'm going in. I'm going in. I'm going to talk to the police. And we said, OK, let's go. 
Um, and then, of course, we didn't go and see the police. And and to this day, it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, a family, you know, story. So hang on, does anyone ever fessed up? No one ever found out what it was. But no you're saying it definitely out. wasn't you. Definitely wasn't me. Definitely wasn't me. And my yeah. brother insists it wasn't him. In terms of blaming someone else, well, um, when I was a kid, we had we always had dogs in my family. And one morning I, I got up and walked downstairs and I think I stood in a pile of crap or something. Or it might have been vomit, I can't remember which. And so I grabbed this dog um, um, and... Um, yeah, gave him a hefty smack and, and, you know, put his nose in or whatever, all these sorts of things. And what was a bit odd at the time, this Labrador, was that he was seemed a bit sort of, because usually when a dog's guilty, you know, you can tell pretty quickly. And he was just actually quite surprised. And it turned out that we had another dog who was, because um, it was always this first dog who was always the, it was always Well, this him. is just like the tale of Flewellyn and, and Gellert from Welsh yes. folklore. Yes, 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 yeah. Well, well not exactly. It wasn't the dog being heroic in that one. Yeah, he kills the dog because he thinks he's eaten his or attacked his son, and then it yeah, turns out the dog was defending his son from a wolf. A wolf. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not quite the same, um, but anyway, it turns it's out it was a different enough. dog. It was a different dog, and so I'd beaten the wrong dog basically, I, and I still feel quite guilty about yeah, that. Yeah, you should, um, Chris. Yeah, well, I, I I don't really have a story of um, me casting blame uh, Good. At, at somebody. I I. I I, gen- I generally tend not to think that, um, you know, I-, I suppose I'm quite slow to apportion blame because, um, yeah, I-, I-, I think it's it's something I seem to consider quite a lot for some reason. But um, And also I know it's never, ever one person's fault. But mm. there are a couple of occasions where I have uh, been um, blamed in, in situations. Uh, the first was the... Um, the great wallet theft of St. Peter's Church of England school, um, where a uh, wallet was stolen from a from a changing room, and um, prime suspect Chris Rag front well, and no, centre. No, they, they basically they they rounded up five people who they the usual suspects the usual suspects, and they yeah. shook them down. And and basically, like there was me sat on my own. They got these five people. They'd obviously boiled it down for some reason to the fact that Sat on your own with your new gold chain That's and right, your yeah. Rolex watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and Peter Smith's ID badge. But um, yeah, um, so yeah, uh, they, they basically sat down and said, we know you've done it. Mm. Um, you know, because, uh, you know, we, we've, we've managed to work that out. So you might as well just tell us now, you know, that you've done it. Anyway, they were I trying to burble said, you up for the Tottenham yeah, blag. Exactly. So, so I obviously, you know, went. Well, no, I didn't. You know, but any, anyway, it turns out they were obviously presented. They did this with um, mm, with everyone. all the children, which I yeah. thought was was pretty morally reprehensible to do that to, to kind of kids as a as a you know a, a posse of adults sat in a in a intimidating horseshoe. Um, so that was that was uh, that one. Well, did they find the culprit in the end? Yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Or at least somebody coughed to it anyway, under right. the pressure, you know, whether, whether it was them or not, I don't know. But um, but yeah. And then the other one is um, the time uh, I was playing table tennis round at, uh, at um, a, um, a not anymore friend's house um, and we were playing table tennis and his parents were quite, um, quite sort of disciplinarian, not not very nice. 
uh, and we were playing and the ball went on the floor and I trod on it and mm. you know it, you know what happens to table tennis balls when you when you tread on them they um, are t- that's that is it that is the end of the ball, it's the ball there's no coming back from there that. isn't there isn't um, and uh, his uh, mother came in who was a bit like um, uh, Norman Bates mother really um, <laughs> uh, and she came in and was like what, what you know how did this ball get broken and and this kid goes, well, he he did it, like, and I just, I, even though I actually did do it, I just couldn't get my. It was like this unwritten rule. But also, I also the fact that it, the implication would be that you'd said, I don't like this ball. I'm going to yeah. stamp on it yeah, rather exactly. than just. Yeah. yeah, it was it was unbelievable. And I thought that's, uh, you know, that that, that he, like I say, you just as a kid, you never let your friends take the blame from your parents. I thought that was like. Mm. Anyway, that was that was the end of that friendship. Well, yeah, quite right too. What a scumbag! Yeah. I feel outraged on your behalf, Chris, on both yeah. of those um, yeah. occasions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's loads more I could talk about, but I won't. And that um, and that and that young boy's name, Dominic Cummings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll stop there. <laughs> As always, thanks for listening. If you've got any thoughts or suggestions for topics, you can email us at podcast at We'd love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed the podcast what should you do nick have a guilt-free tap on the old like button very good uh thanks as always for listening i'm fraser mcgrew we've been here with chris rag and nick hare of aleph insights until next time goodbye mm-hmm.